Well, I want you to turn to the book of Malachi this morning, the book of Malachi. And we begin a new series uh, that we are entitling uh, Malachi, an Old Testament declaration with an 08 application. And I'm going to be talking more about that in a moment. But uh, there's been some question about what does this logo mean? I had uh, one of uh, my fellow elders say, is that the mouth of God? And I said, no, we don't know what the mouth of God looks like. I had a younger individual, which I was surprised by, said, are we going to start singing Rolling Stones songs? And I said, uh, there's some in here that might like that, uh, but others would say that would bring no satisfaction at all to them. Yeah. See, Al, uh, Ray, I can pun with the best of them. What we were trying to do with this, I'd like to thank David Wood for uh, putting this logo together. We wanted to give the idea that Malachi is an announcement. Malachi is a conversation, and the best way uh, we could find to uh, put that together was to put a mouth there. God is speaking, and the people need to listen, and the people need to change what they're doing. We're going to be looking at this Old Testament declaration and looking at how it applies to us today. Well, in our outlines, I've put together a, just a paragraph that I want to read to get us up to date of what happened in the time of Malachi. This is what it says. God's last Old Testament message to his earthly people Israel is directed to the remnant that returned from the Babylonian captivity. This remnant had totally failed during the decades after the return in their testimony for God. Now, it is true that the Jews did no longer um, serve the idols as they did before their exile, but their moral condition was marked by indifference, despising of God and unbelief. Into this situation, God declares his unchanging love for the people and points out their sin and their departure from his commandments, which is seen in Malachi 1 and 2. But God also announces to the Jews that severe judgments will come upon them before he sends his next prophet to usher in the coming of Jesus Christ, Malachi 3 and 4. So over the next couple months, we're going to examine this ancient message and learn principles and commands that remain true today because the book of Malachi is truly an ancient truth for modern times. I want to do an overview today as we look at Malachi. Uh, we're going to do a jet tour through the book, and we're going to just give some characteristics. How many have ever studied the book of Malachi this morning? How many have ever done a real study of the book of Malachi? That's why we're teaching the book of Malachi. So we're going to get everybody but those three that raised their hands up to date on the book of Malachi. If you don't know where the book of Malachi is, the Ma book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So you want to find uh, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, and turn to the left just a couple pages and you will find the four chapter book of Malachi. Now, some have said that this, uh, uh, this man, Malachi, uh, was of an Italian descent, and they called him Malachi. So if you're Italian here, we will call him Malachi and make you happy, the book of Malachi. But this Old Testament book that we have, we find ourselves needing to have an overview that takes place. So I want to read just from the first chapter this morning, and as our uh, custom, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Malachi 1, starting with verse 1 and going through uh, verse 11. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, 
But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord said? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance into, or left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will, call, they will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Verse 6, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Now if I am a father, where is my honor that is due me? If I am a master, where is the respect that is due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light, uh, so you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. May my name uh, be great among the nations. From the rising to the setting of the sun, in every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Father God, we come to uh, this book of the Bible this morning. Four chapters that speak about a people who had fallen asleep spiritually. Four chapters talking about people who have turned from you to follow other things. Oh Lord, they weren't following other gods, but they were following the the things that had distracted them, the things that uh, were not of you. Oh Lord, we need to hear this message this morning. We may not serve other gods in, in, in the world religion sphere of things, but Lord, we serve other things because we are distracted away from you. And as you say, it is time for us to return to you. Father, I pray that we would be a people that return to you, that our nation would return to you, that this world would return to you because you say that judgment is coming and that all that do not profess and confess the name of Jesus Christ will stand guilty on that day of judgment. Oh, Lord, we don't desire that. We know that you long for people to come to know the saving knowledge of your Son. So, Lord, let us preach that. Let us teach that. Let us declare that to our workplaces and throughout our world and our community so that you would receive glory, that you would receive honor in this place and to all ages without end. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. As long as I can remember, I have been an individual who hates getting up early on any day of the week. I don't care what it's for. I'm not, I, I, it doesn't even matter, to be quite honest with you. Even if the Cubs were playing an 8 o'clock game, there's a good chance I would show up at about the third or fourth inning. I despise 
getting up early. Now, I'm not sure what it is. I know that I'm a late uh, kind of night owl who finds himself uh, uh, staying busy into all hours of the night. Maybe that may be the case. But even when I go to bed early, I find it very difficult to wake up. And I'm so glad I have a wife that sets her alarm and, and nudges me and says, Tim, we've got to make a living today. It's time to get up. Tim, you've got to preach today. It's time to get up. But what I remember was, is this was a, a point of contention for my parents. When it was time to get up for school, my mom would lightly prod me. I was a big guy, so she really couldn't move me all that much. And, and she would come in and say, Tim, it's time for school. It's, it's time to get up. And, and I'd say, oh, yeah, okay, Mom, I'm getting up, I'm getting up, and fall back to sleep. And she would do it again. And she would come back even a third or fourth time. And then she would now start to change her tactics. And instead of trying to wake me by, by prodding me or, or giving some uh, small little threats of missing the school bus or not being able to have time to eat dinner, my mom would say, I can't get you up. Maybe your father can. Now, that got me moving. Because I had two choices. Choice number one, get up and receive favor and blessing from my parents of being a good son who got up and did what he was supposed to do. Or most likely what usually happened was my father would come in wielding something that's not very politically correct and, uh, and wreak havoc in my lives. I'll leave it at that so my father doesn't get into any criminal trouble. And so what would happen? I had a choice. My slumber could be stopped because of the, if you will, the threats or the words of an impending judgment and gain favor and blessing from my parents, or I would receive the hand of judgment and wrath. Now you say, how does all that fit together? The book of Malachi is a book written to a slumbering group of people. The nation of Israel finds themselves back uh, from uh, the Babylonian uh, captivity where they found themselves in what we call now modern-day Iraq. And they find themselves now coming back and rebuilding cities and rebuilding the temple. But there just isn't pizzazz to their faith. They, if you will, are sleepwalking through uh, their spiritual lives. And the prophets time and time again find themselves trying to wake these people from their slumber. And what they would say is, is wake up. And if you wake up, there will be prosperity. There will be blessing. There will be good fortune for you in the nation of Israel. But if you don't wake up, woe to you because there is an impending judgment that will take place. That's what book, the book of Malachi is all about. The prophet Malachi is trying to wake up a sleeping people. This is one of the reasons why I picked this book, because we here, especially in the West as Christians, find ourselves sleeping. We got great big buildings. We got great big churches that have all kinds of money and revenue. Even our pastors become superstars, but we have no power. The Bible says that we deny the power of God when we find ourselves asleep in our Christianity. We have a vision or a picture of power, but we deny it. And the sad thing is, is what begins to happen is we grow weak, we grow weary, and we find ourselves being ineffective for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to share just a couple things with you this morning about this in an overview. I want to move quickly through this stuff. So we see a couple things that take place. First of all, two divisions in this book. There are two divisions in this book. The first division happens uh, in uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, and that is the condition of the people. 
Malachi is going to spend a lot of time talking about the condition of the people. There's going to be um, some dialogue between God and the people of Israel articulating, you've got a problem. You're walking through your spiritual life sleeping and something needs to change. The next thing that we see, the next division comes in chapter 3 and 4, and that is the coming of the Lord. In chapter 3 and 4, we see a change. Now, they're still talking about the condition of the people, but it is in light of this coming Messiah who is going to come. Now, we see two facets of that coming Messiah. We see, first of all, that there's a conversation that speaks about uh, John the Baptist coming, being the messenger, the next prophet who would come, the forerunner uh, for Jesus Christ, the great Messiah who would come to save us from our sins. But at the end of chapter 4, we see that another prophet would come, and the prophet would be Elijah, and that would be at the day of the great time of judgment. And so we're going to see two different times of the coming of the Lord. One, we believe, is the first coming of Christ, and the second one we believe to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see the coming of the Lord, one who preaches uh, grace and mercy and love, and yet another time Christ will come and he will bring forth judgment. Now, there are five attributes we need to understand about this book. Five attributes. First of all, Malachi is a uh, concluding book. It's a concluding book. What do I mean by that? Well, Malachi finds itself at the end of the Old Testament. It's the last book of the 39 books of the Old Testament canon. So we need to understand that this is the last prophetic message that the people are going to have for more than 400 years. There's going to be no more prophets until uh, John the Baptist comes at the beginning of the Gospels. The next thing we see is it's a connecting book. It's a connecting book. Now, because Malachi is at the end of the Old Testament, you would say, well, how does it connect with the New Testament? Well, it begins to look beyond the end of the Old Testament and say, prepare yourself. Get ready for the coming king. He's coming and we must be ready for him even now. And it begins to connect the old with the new. It was said that the book of Malachi, we hear the sounds of a departing time, but we hear the chimes of a coming age. That's what Malachi does. It brings an end to the Old Testament part of the canon, but it announces that there's another time coming. There's another age coming. So don't think this is the end of the story. There is more to come. And if you would, uh, at the end of the book of Malachi, you should write down on that empty page in your Bible to be continued because for 400 years, there's a break in time until John the Baptist rises up to be the forerunner of Christ. It's a connecting book. Next, we see it's a coexistent book. It's coexistent. What I mean by that is the book of Malachi was written about 430 B.C., 430 years before the coming of Christ. Now, we need to understand that Malachi, most likely from what we know of history, was a peer of the scribe Ezra, And he was also a man that lived during the time of Nehemiah. So this wasn't written all by itself where Malachi is the only Christian in his area. There were other guys that were preaching the coming of the Lord and preaching a restoration uh, back to God. Now, Malachi is uh, one generation uh, from the man Haggai, the prophet Haggai, which we studied uh, a couple years ago when we did a series called Under Construction. And he's a couple generations from Zechariah, the prophet, which is the book right before Malachi. Now you say, well, Tim, how does all that work out? 
For many of us, we think that the uh, Old Testament and New Testament is a chronological book, that we start with Genesis and we go through all the way to the book of Revelation and it just starts as if you would look at the history of time. And that is not how it takes place. Uh, Yes, Genesis is the beginning and some of them fall into chronological order, but especially with the prophets, we find a lot of overlap taking place. So where does Malachi fit into biblical history? I want to give you, I'm going to try to do it in three minutes starting with Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, we learn about a man named Abram. Abram lives in a place called uh, the land of the Chaldeans, Ur of Chaldea. That is northern part of Iraq, somewhere in the neighborhood of Mosul, Iraq. And we see him coming and the Lord says, I want to take you to a new place where I will make you a great nation. And of course, we know that Abraham, uh, with the birth of Isaac and the preceding generations, creates the nation of Israel. Israel, a nation that is set apart from God, a nation that is going to be blessed by God and, and who should honor God with everything that they do. Israel doesn't do that. And at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we find Israel not in a place of prosperity, but in a place of bondage. We find Israel in a place called Egypt, serving the pharaohs of Egypt, building the pyramids that we see in the desert. And of course, then what takes place? God says, all right, I've heard the cries of my people in Egypt. So what am I going to do? He pulls a man away. He brings up a burning bush and he speaks to a man named Moses. And he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell my, uh, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. We know that that's what he does. He said, God sends the 10 plagues to Egypt. We know Pharaoh finally says enough is enough. You guys can get out of here. I'm tired of seeing you and all the calamity that you bring. And Moses leads them out into the Exodus. We know after the Red Sea, remember Charlton Heston parting the Red Sea? That's where we're at in the Bible. We find them walking across the Red Sea and they begin to rebel against God. They want to go back to Egypt. And God for 40 years leaves them wandering around doing circles in the wilderness and not finding the promised land. After 40 years of wandering in the promised land, Moses dies. The nation of Israel is handed over to a young man named Joshua. Joshua takes over and he leads the nation into the promised land, taking over cities like Jericho and many others along the way. After Joshua dies, no leader is brought up to be the long-standing leader of Israel. God appoints judges. For whatever reason, he appoints judges in that day. We know Samuel uh, was a judge. We know that uh, Samson was a judge. There was even a woman judge named Deborah. Gideon also was a judge. And during this time of the judges, we find out that there are different uh, men and women rising up to lead the people of Israel. Of course, during that time of the judges, we know that the book of Ruth is written. As we talked about last summer, learning about that time of the judges where Ruth comes from Moab and is found in favor with Boaz, her new husband. We then find ourselves uh, after that, that time of judges, that the people begin to clamor and they begin to say, we want a king. We look at every other nation around us and everybody's got kings. So give us a king. We want a king who's tall. We want a king who's good looking. Give us a king. So God gives them Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel. Saul does good for a while, but after some major missteps and major sins in uh, Saul's life, God says, I'm done working with you, Saul. I'm going to appoint another to take your place. And so God says Samuel out uh, to the countryside and he goes to the house of Jesse and he picks of one of the sons of Jesse, a man, a young man by the name of David. David becomes king. 
And David begins to do great things. Israel becomes as great as it ever would be in the historical times under the time of David. David's doing great. He honors the Lord. He wrote many of the Psalms in our Bible. But then he starts going out one late one night. He sees a young woman bathing named Bathsheba. He lusts after her. He takes her into his home. He sleeps with her. As a result, he's got to get rid of her husband because she's a married woman. So he says, I will kill Uriah the Hittite, her husband. And what happens? I'll take her into my home. Everything's going fine for a year until the prophet Nathan comes along and he says, you have done an, an evil thing in the sight of God. And after that point, David, uh, peak of greatness begins to fall. There's trouble in his household. There's trouble within his nation. His son Absalom is chasing after him. And we've got a big problem. Well, David dies and his other son Solomon takes over. Solomon, known for his wonderful wisdom and knowledge, who wrote uh, some of the Proverbs, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, was an, um, as a major king as well. But he too had a problem just like his father did. He had a love for women, more than 700 wives and concubines. That's a lot of uh, date nights to keep uh, in, in tow. But we see that during that time, Solomon tries to get back to the point of his father's greatness. He builds a temple, and that is short-lived because at the end of Solomon's reign uh, as king of Israel, then what takes place is that the Babylonians, my people, the Assyrians, come in and wipe out uh, much of the Israel, uh, Israel's infrastructure. They destroy the temple, and they take people into captivity. That's where our friend Daniel in the lion's den comes into play. He is taken as a young man to Babylon, finds himself serving in the king's court, being trained and being taught. Daniel, of course, rises to a place of great prominence as a prophet for the people of Israel. We know that during that captivity, Jeremiah comes. And we know that Jeremiah is told that 70 years and the captivity would be over. That is during that great passage where he is told by God, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and to give you a future and a hope. Why does he say that? Because he tells Jeremiah this captivity is coming to an end. And so we see the beginning of the exodus back to from the exile from Babylon. What happens in the return? We've got some people returning. Our friend Haggai comes back and he and Zerubbabel, a great name. If I have a son, I'm thinking about Zerubbabel as a name. Joshua, the high priest, all go back and they begin to rebuild Solomon's temple. We know that Zechariah is a part of that as well. We also know that Ezra comes back. He brings back the word of the Lord, the law to the people. And then we know that during that time when Ezra comes back, we know Nehemiah, who is a cupbearer in the Babylonian empire, finds himself seeking to go back to Israel to rebuild the walls around the city. It is then during that point that Malachi, for wherever he would have been at, finds himself. The Old Testament in four and a half minutes. All right? This is a coexistent book. It fits within the parameters of what God is trying to declare in His Word. But there's another thing we see. It's a contemporary book. This book is 2,500 years old, and the message still rings true today. G. Campbell Morgan, a pastor of a generation ago, said that Scripture never exhausted itself in the age that it was given. 
Scripture never defines itself only in a certain context. Where the Bible says all Scripture is living and it's active. It's involved even now and it's applicable as much now as it was when it was first written. The topics that Malachi deals with, the love of God, the depravity of man, sinful spiritual leaders, rampant divorce, stingy giving to the Lord, <clears throat> careless worship, and indifference to truth. That doesn't sound like 25 years ago. It sounds like the year 2008. The final thing we see is it's a challenging book. It's a challenging book. Because of these topics, Malachi is an in-your-face type of book. It's going to deal with some harsh realities in the life of God's people. So we need to look at three focuses very quickly this morning. The first focus as we get into this book, as we look at verse 1, we see the calling of the prophet. We see the calling of the prophet. Look at Malachi 1.1 for a moment. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Let's stop there for a moment. The first thing we've got to see from Malachi 1.1 is that we need to understand Malachi the man. We need to know who this guy is, what this guy is all about. The problem is, is the Bible says absolutely nothing about him. We don't know where he's from. We don't know who his parents were. Like in most prophetic days, a prophet would say, I'm so-and-so, son of my father, so-and-so, and I'm from this place. There is nowhere in Old Testament scripture that speaks of this man, Malachi. Now we can begin to start speculating, which many do, and they begin to wonder, is Malachi a real person? The Hebrew word for Malachi, uh, or name for Malachi, literally means my messenger. So it could have been anybody who was the messenger of the Lord. And because of that, speculation takes place. John Calvin said that Malachi wasn't written by a guy named Malachi, but it was a guy named Ezra who had written the book of Ezra. Martin Luther didn't agree with Calvin. There's no uh, real surprise there at times. And Luther said it wasn't Ezra, it was Nehemiah. But we don't know who wrote it. But we do know a couple things about this man. First of all, write this in your bullet points here. The first thing that we need to understand about this man, whoever it was, is that he submitted to God. He submitted to God. We know that because God saw it fit to take the words that he spoke through this man, if it was Malachi or someone else, to place it in the Old Testament canon of Scripture, that it would be God-inspired. And for it to be God-inspired, that individual would have had to submit to the calling that God had in their life. The next thing we see is he was sent by God. This man was sent by God. It would never have been easy in the day that Malachi or Ezra or Nehemiah, whoever it was, to have spoken. Think about if you had to go to your workplace and say some of the things that Malachi did. And say, God is angry with you. God is upset with you. He's upset about this or he's upset about that. We need to understand that whoever this was, he had a calling by God and he was faithful to that calling as well. There's some great application to that this morning. Many times we're so worried about who the messenger is that we forget about who or what the message is. We're so busy wanting God to understand who, uh, who said the message that we don't listen to the message that is far more important. It isn't important who wrote Malachi. What is important is what does the message say to us and to the people of Israel in Malachi's day. Well, once we look at the man, we see the message. Malachi 1.1, it says, The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now we now have learned that we don't know much about Malachi. 
But we do know something about the message. First of all, it's a heavy message. It's a heavy message. This word oracle, if you underline or write in your Bibles, you can circle the word oracle. It literally means a burden, a burden. The word in the Hebrew is masa. Masa literally means something that is heavy and something that is focused on an urgent message, an urgent declaration that is being articulated. This isn't just something very quiet and quaint of a message that that we just kind of sit around our table and talk about and nuance. This is an urgent call for restoration in the house of Israel. Now, what, what makes it heavy? Well, what makes this message heavy? It deals with heavy topics. The Word of God is always heavy. The thing that I struggle with so many times today is that many preachers find themselves preaching one half of who God is. They talk about the love of God and they talk about how God is kind to us and how He loves us and, and how He wants to take care of us and how He wants to bless us. All of that can be true. But the other thing that we see in Scripture is the weightiness of Scripture. When God says that I am struggling with you, I am disappointed in you, I am angry with you, and there are times where the the burden of Scripture is going to be quite heavy. And that's why we teach the whole counsel of God's Word. We do teach that God loves. We do teach that God cares. But we also teach that God is a consuming fire and that He is going to one day bring judgment and calamity upon all those who rebel against Him. It isn't always just good news. Then yet, even within the good news, there's a burden as well because people will reject it. One of the, uh, the saddest commentaries of humanity is that we find ourselves as we hear the good news of Jesus Christ. What he says is you're blind, dead, and held captive by the evil and you're on your way to hell. But there's good news, humanity. Jesus Christ came and he's the savior of all who will believe. Now, now you say, wow, that's great news. But some people turn away in disgust and say, I don't want to hear about it. Malachi was right. It was a burden. It is a heavy message for us to hear. The next thing we see is it's a heavenly message. It says the word of the Lord. Now our burden comes out not because of our own personal convictions. It doesn't come as a result of our thoughts or our desires. This isn't Malachi's fanciful message about his involvement with God. He doesn't say, hey, I hung out with God and I I thought about writing a book and this is the book I'm going to write, the gospel according to Malachi. No, This is the word of the Lord. He says it right in the beginning. This isn't from me, but this is from God. It's important that we remember that. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. This is not something that the apostles put together. This isn't something that uh, we as preachers have put together. The message of Scripture is God-breathed. He's announced this. Now, how did it come to fruition? Write this passage in your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 20 and 21. This is what Peter says in his second epistle. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Where did Malachi get this message? He got it from God. How did he get it from God? Through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And through his words, God inspired the writings that he had. And we believe that. When we read the book of Malachi, we believe that we are listening to the very voice of God. That's what we believe. And that's what we hold to. It's a heavenly message. Finally, it's a hard message. It's written to Israel. 
It's written to Israel. This wasn't a message that was uh, sent to comfort. It was sent to confront. This wasn't a commendation that's given to Israel. God isn't sitting there saying, oh, I love you. You've done such a wonderful job. Go, Israel. Great, great, great. It's not a commendation. It's a condemnation. We need to understand that this is a hard book, not only for the nation of Israel, but for us today, because it's going to be dealing, as I said, with topics that are going to address the very fabric of what American evangelicalism finds itself failing in. This is a call to arms by our Heavenly Father saying, get awake, get up, and start doing what I've called you to do. This message was to convict people of sin. It was to call people to repentance, and that's never easy. It's amazing that time and time again, Jesus would have all these crowds following after them. I remember uh, in John chapter 6, we see Jesus uh, at the end of John, or beginning of John 5, uh, healing a man uh, at a pool who's paralyzed for 38 years. And people say, wow, this Jesus is a pretty amazing guy. And then we see in John chapter 6, he, he takes uh, food and he creates a, a massive catering uh, miracle. And he gives food for 5,000 from a little boy's lunch of loaves and fishes. And people are saying, this guy is amazing. He's awesome. But we understand that God's not about crowds. We know that God isn't about uh, having people that just love him and adore him for the great things that he does in the way of miracles. So what does Jesus do? He does what we call Operation Crowd Reduction. At the end of chapter 6, he says, there's too many people here. Not all of you are committed to the faith and committed to following me. So what I ask of you is, is if you are going to follow me, you eat my flesh and drink my blood. That never goes over well at whatever party you're at. Just try that sometime. Hang out with some friends. And uh, right when you think your jokes are going really well and everything, say, hey, I got something for you. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. You'll be booted out of a party in no time. I tried that once when we were at a party I didn't like. Just kidding. That, well, that died. Wow. Wow. We won't use that one again. But we see that Jesus addresses the people and he says there's a call to repentance. There's a call to holiness. You can't follow Christ just for the good stuff, but the Bible says we must deny ourselves and take up the cross of Jesus Christ. While Jesus Christ has not come yet in bodily form in Malachi's day, he is also calling them to restoration. Never an easy message. Well, that's the man and the message and the calling of the prophet. We see next the condition of the people. Point number two, the people need a wake-up call. They need to turn from sin. And that's why God speaks through his prophet. This book is set up like a parent talking to a child. I'm starting to understand that more and more with a five-year-old. Noah, did you hit your brother? No, I didn't hit my brother. Well, where did he get the wealth? The house fell on top of him. Okay, well, the house didn't fall on top of him, Noah, because the house is still standing. Well, the car ran into him. Well, that didn't happen either, Noah. What happened? I guess I hit him. This is what's happening in Malachi's day. God announces something, says, children of Israel, you're not doing this. And what do they say? Who, us? We're doing that. How can you say we're not doing that? Someone else must have, mis you must be mistaken by what someone else is doing. We're doing what you've said. Now, this is seen because the children of Israel try to play dumb. They try to play dumb as God speaks to them. This is first of all seen in the announcements of God. The announcements of God. There are seven announcements that we are going to look at during our time, 14 weeks in this series. 
The first announcement, I want you to look through your Bible uh, in Malachi. We're going to look at each one of them very quickly. I'm just going to uh, mark them out for you. Malachi 1-2, the Lord says, I have loved you. In Malachi 1-6, the Lord says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due to me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. In verse uh, 1-7, it says, you place defiled food on my altar, God says. In uh, verse uh, chapter 2, verse 17, turn the page. We see the defying of God's patience. In verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, it says in verse 17. In chapter 3, verse 7, another announcement comes. And it is that we have deserted the fellowship with God. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7 says, uh, ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. We see in uh, verse 8 of that same chapter, the robbing of God and debating of God's commands in the area of giving. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me, he says in verse 8. And then I have... Uh, uh, they dissed them with his words. There's my uh, contemporary vernacular. They dissed them. Verse 13, we see, you have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Seven arguments that are started by God. We've got a problem, Israel. My dad used to walk in uh, to my room when I was a child and he would say, Tim, do we have a problem? And usually there was a problem and the problem had been shared by my mother in regards to one of the problems at school. And what is God saying? He's saying to Israel through the prophet Malachi, we've got a problem, Israel. We need to fix it and get it right. Well, look at what takes place. We see these announcements from God. You think that they would say, all right, God, you're right. We need to fix it. We need to be sincere in our repentance. Does it happen? Absolutely not, because we see the answers from the people. Each time uh, they act innocent in the rebellion towards God. They're being passive aggressive, if you will, as a nation. They think that they're being completely innocent even though they're completely guilty. Look at their answers to each of those arguments. You deny my love. Listen to what they say. Uh, but you ask, how have you loved us? They question the love of God. Have you ever done that before? Things aren't going the way they should and you hear that God is a God of love and you say, how can you say, God, that you love me? How have you loved me? The people in Malachi's day asked that question. The next one is when they when he they despised his name. He says in verse uh, six, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Come on, God. Come on. Are you serious? We've shown contempt for your name. We, we're, we're on the same man. We're good. Don't worry about it, God. Everything's great. And yet they're, they're despising the name of God in the defilement of the altar. He says, you've defiled me by placing defiled stuff on the altar that is given to worship me. But they say, how have we defiled you? They keep questioning God. Defy my patience. Chapter 2, verse 17. Look at what it says. Uh, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied you, Lord? They keep doing it time and time again. Every one of the seven, God announces something and the people say, oh, come on, Lord, how have we done that? You and me, mano and mano, I love you, you love me. And yet they were far from the Lord. What causes this? There are three things that can cause this in our own lives. Number one, spiritual ignorance. 
We may believe that the reason why Malachi had so many problems that he had to address it through the word of the Lord was that people just didn't know what the Lord uh, wanted of them, that they didn't know what the Lord required of them. And so what Malachi does is he says, hey, fix it. Now, we know that it probably wasn't the vast majority of people that were ignorant of it because they not only are uh, aware of what's going on, but they question God. So we see not only just a um, spiritual ignorance, but we see spiritual indifference. They just don't care. They're too busy doing other things. I will tell you, that is the sin of evangelicalism in the United States. It's not that we're ignorant of what God says, and it's not so much that we're in outright rebellion, but we just don't care. We got bigger fish to fry in this world. We got bigger things to worry about. Malachi deals with that in the area of giving. He says, you know what? You're robbing me, God says, with your tithes and offerings. And yet in the evangelical world, we find out that many times it's not that we don't want to give to the Lord. I think most people say, yeah, I'd like to give. But we're so busy dealing with the other cares of this time. And we say, Lord, I wish I had some money at the end of the day, but I don't. Maybe if I make a million dollars, I can give you some of my tithes and offerings. God says, hey, this is a command. Do it. He doesn't say do it based on your circumstances. He says do it no matter your circumstances. And yet in the evangelical world, we find ourselves indifferent to the things of the Lord. We are one of the greatest and most... uh, educated group of people in Christianity's history, and yet we find ourselves indifferent to the truth that we know. And that's what saddens me so many times when preachers get up and talk all about you and how great you as individuals are and how great I am, instead of going and saying, this is what the word of the Lord says. It is time for us to wake up from our slumber and start serving our king. The final thing that we see is that it was just insubordination. They answer the Lord. There's spiritual insubordination that takes place. They know who God is and they question God. I'll tell you something. As teaching and preaching takes place in this church, we want to educate people, not with just a head knowledge, but an experiential and head understanding, a head and a heart that works out into the hands. What do I mean by that? We teach the truths of the rational thought of who God is. It should grip our hearts. God says that uh, he loves us. God says that he cares for us. But he also says that he's going to be a consuming fire and he's going to uh, judge the wicked uh, in a, at a time and that he's against those who uh, don't follow Christ. But it should grip our heart as well and it should lead us to serve others. And many of us find ourselves in different places. We're ignorant to the truth. Then start learning about God. Start opening the scripture. Some of us are indifferent. Start turning away from the things that keep you from serving God. And finally, some of you are insubordinate. And I will tell you before it's too late, turn back to your God. Return to God and he will return to you. Malachi chapter 3 says. There's one final thing that we see this morning. And that is the corruption of the priest. The corruption of the priests. What, why, why does this happen? What causes a nation to grow tired in their service of their king? In any organization, whether it's on the baseball field, whether it's in the schoolroom, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in our government, when things go bad, the first place everybody goes to is who? The leadership. The leadership. The leadership will always be brought to a place of contention because they want to know why did the leaders allow such and such to happen. When the Cubs, during all their years of failings, 
Why is it that they've never fired the whole team, but they've gone through manager after manager after manager, even though it is our year this year, manager after manager? What happens? They say the leader is the one who's held responsible. That's what happens. This is what takes place in Malachi's day. God speaks out to uh, uh, the priest. Look at chapter 2 for a moment. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, And now this admonition is for you. Who? The people of Israel? No, he says, you, O priest, if you do not listen, if you do not set your heart to honor me, says the Lord, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them because you've not set your heart to honor me. God says he's going to deal with leaders. I'm studying in the book of James with my small group right now. And we dealt with a text that I don't like to hear uh, very often. And that is, is that not many of you should be teachers because we need to understand that teachers of the word are under a stricter judgment. That's where I say, you know what? No snack for me tonight. My stomach is a little queasy. I'm going to stand as a teacher. And if anybody picks up God's word and teaches it, the scriptures say we're under a stricter judgment. I don't know what that looks like, but it scares me. I need to make sure that I'm leading and teaching in a proper way. The people, the priests in the book of Malachi were not. Now we see what the requirements are for dedicated leadership. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Just want to finish this up and we'll close our time out. It says this, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. There are three attributes to good leadership. The first one, write this down, is a growing leadership. He says that the the priest, uh, from the lips of a priest, ought to preserve knowledge. In the Hebrew, that, that phrase preserve knowledge literally means to keep learning, to keep articulating truth. That a priest isn't just to say, well, I studied and I'm done, therefore I don't have to do anything more. A priest and a leader is always growing. What you should be seeing in the leaders of this church or in the teachers of your classes is that there's an excitement, that they're growing, that there's a truth that is being applied to their lives, that they're sitting there saying, this is important. You should see your elders uh, pursuing the truths of God and growing, and you should be able to see that. Remember what we talked about when we talked about Paul's admonition to Timothy? Keep devoting yourself, watching over your doctrine, making sure you're reading the Scripture. That's what you should see in your leaders that are above you. Next, we see guiding. It says that the people should seek instruction. There should be a sense of guidance by your elders and by your deacons and by those teachers. They should be helping guide you. The Bible says that God has given some to be pastors and teachers, evangelists, prophets, apostles. Why? So that they can just have all these great positions? No, because their job is to uh, equip the people of God for the works of service. If you don't see the leadership of this church guiding you and growing you in a way that brings you closer and closer to Jesus, then we're failing you as a leadership and we need to change. The final thing we see is the requirement they must be godly. He says that they're messengers of the Lord, messengers of God. Our leaders, especially in the church, must be godly individuals. 
They must be people who not only speak on behalf of the Lord and teach on behalf of the Lord, but they must live that way as well. How many of you have seen where a a pastor in a church has fallen morally or has fallen because of sin, rampant sin in their life and has had to leave the presence of a church? Have you ever seen what that does to a church? It destroys the church. Why? Because we do look to our leaders for help. We do look to our leaders for guidance. And what happens is, is we begin to start placing our leaders on these pedestals and they fail us. And what takes place? We begin to lose faith in our, even our Lord, that people many times in many churches find themselves walking away from the Lord, not because of what the Lord has done to them, but because a leader has lost their trust. And because of that, they feel like they can't trust anybody ever again. Malachi is going to deal with leadership in this thing, in this book. And it's so very important that we understand the requirements for dedicated leadership. But he gives one final thing as I close, and that is a reprimand a reprimand against defiled leadership. Now we see two kinds of defilement that takes place. Individual defilement. A leader sins, he defiles himself. If I was to fall to a sin, I'm going to defile myself and I'm going to defile my family. I'm going to bring reproach upon the name of Christ when it comes to uh, the Bedal family, and, and rightly so. If I fall to sin and don't deal with it, we've got a problem. But notice what happens with leaders. It's influential as well. Look at what it says in verse 8. It says, But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. For you have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. As leaders, we need to make sure. We need to make sure with all our hearts that we're following God and that when we do fail, we get right with God and we seek restoration uh, from others because if we don't, we will influence the whole lot of people around us. So let me close with this. Are you ready to wake up? Are you ready to hear from the voice of the Lord? It's time that we as a church, it's time as we as Christians in this nation wake up to the realization that Jesus Christ is in fact coming. And that this time of waiting just as Malachi was in isn't a time to do what we want, but it is a time to live in obedience and in a life that is given over to our coming King, Jesus Christ. Take this time this week, read this book, and begin to ask the question, am I ready for what the Lord is going to teach me in the weeks and months to come? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for the book of Malachi. And Lord, this is a tough uh, message to preach because we bounce around this four-chapter book to get an understanding of it. But Lord, I pray that we as a people would grow in understanding that it is time to get ready. It is time to uh, put on the full armor of God and be ready for the spiritual battle that is before us. And in doing so, that we would bring glory and honor to you. Lord, if there's anyone here that is ignorant of the truths of Scripture and who you are and what your Son has done, Lord, I pray that they would meet you new today and that they would come and bow to the name of Jesus. If they need help, Lord, I pray that you would lead them, whether to the Welcome Center, to myself, or the person sitting next to them, saying, I'm ignorant to this thought. I don't know what it means to be a Christian. But Lord, even greater, there are some here that are indifferent. There are some here are insubordinate. Lord, I pray that we would turn from our wicked ways and give you our hearts and give you our lives, because that is then that our Father in heaven is glorified. 
So Lord, I pray that you've been glorified in the teaching of your word. We love you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.